Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. Precision cancer medicine involves personalizing the treatment to the individual patient and to the characteristics of their particular tumor. But what is the role of pathology in all of this? My guest today is Dr. Ralph Hoos. Dr. Hoos is a pathologist and the deputy director at the Institute for Digital Medicine in Germany. Today, we're going to talk about his career, and then we'll talk about the book that he co-authored called Precision Cancer Medicine, Role of the Pathologist. All right, here's Dr. Ralph Hoos. When you were younger, uh, I'm curious what or, or who uh, inspired you to become a doctor. Well, um, honestly, I never had exposure to the medical profession in, in my family or in my, my, even my friends. But many years ago, when I when I finished school, I was drafted to the army, and uh, I had to go to the or do the service at an army hospital. And that was the moment when I was quite intrigued by uh, doing medicine and, and getting exposed to, to different disciplines. I mean, it was uh, surgery, internal medicine, um, and neurology, and, and these type of things. And that's when I decided to take a closer look uh, into medicine. And and uh, since then, I I got hooked on. Okay, I see. So when you were you were working there at the hospital, like what, what was your position? We had to do our service. That was mandatory at the time, many years ago. And uh, so I was doing something like a, a, a nurse type of, of service. Um, so supporting the the physicians and the, the the nurses in the in the OR, but also on the wards, and uh, so I was just doing regular assist nurse stuff at the time. Were there other fields that you were kind of interested in at the time besides medicine? Oh yeah, I mean, I, I actually never thought about medicine. I was to become a uh, you know a, a lawyer or let's say a um, a businessman. So I was okay. thinking to studying political science or something like that. So it, it, it all of a sudden came to me that I decided to, to do medicine instead. So you went to medical school and before going in, did you have any idea about the field of pathology or did you discover that kind of during no, no, your that, studies? That, that came way later in my, my life. I mean, when I went to med school, I mean, like probably most young male students, I wanted to become a surgeon, you know, and that was when, where I did most of my my work um, during during med school, but mm-hmm. um, I went to to med school in the in the eighties, and that was the the high tide of of immunology. I mean, there were basically every other year there was a Nobel Prize for immunology or transplantation medicine, and uh, that was the time when when we first discovered, or not me, but but others discovered, you know, what what are T cells and different T cell subtypes and MHC restriction and everything that has to do with with tolerance and uh, uh, transplantation, and we were far away from uh, all the facts we know today, and uh, what I assume we'll talk about later. Um, so that's when I, when I really got got interested. So I did my my PhD thesis also in immunology and uh, worked with the with the Nobel laureate uh, Ralph Sinkenagel in Zurich, uh, where I completed my studies. So it was a, it was really the, the high tide for immunology and, and transplantation medicine. All right, let's let's talk about the PhD program. Then you, you said immunology and transplantation biology. Now this was you did this after medical school, is that yes. right? Yes, yes. When I finished medical school, you know, I could either go directly into practice, but I 
I decided to do some some internships and some externship and also join a join a PhD program, which is a little bit different in Europe than it is in the US. So I, I went to to Switzerland and joined the immunology lab of of Ralf Zinkernagel and um, and also did some some work uh, as a as a guest scientist at the Memorial Sloan Kettering um, at the Leukemia Service at the time. And that's when I decided to to complete my PhD in, in immunology and also do a postdoc in transplantation biology um, in at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center in, in Seattle. How did you become interested in these fields? Was it just, like you said, it was the 80s and that was kind of the hot topic at the time? Or is this something that you were interested in uh, kind of before that? No, no, actually, it was, it was kind of a coincidence. I mean, you know, you, you talk to other fellow students and you listen to, to uh, lectures. And actually, it was, I remember a lecture by the Nobel laureate, uh, Georges Köhler, who got the Nobel Prize together with Cesar Milstein, I think, in 84, 85, something like that, for the discovery or for the generation of monoclonal antibodies. So everything that allows us today to do our diagnostic and therapeutic antibodies. So we went to his lecture at my my university, and he gave a fantastic insight in, into immunology, and that's when I decided also to take a closer look and um, to to join immunology. And there was, again, I think for those who as who are basically just in the maybe mid thirties or even early forties, I think you have no idea what immunology was about in those days. I mean. Um, it was there was just th- thoughts about tolerance and and um, that everything ha- was educated already ready and and done with the T cell repertoire um, after uh, you know puberty uh, and that the thymus does everything so it was the days when even a peripheral tolerance was basically a no name uh, so nobody knew about uh, regulatory T cells and and uh, all of the factors, the humoral uh, factors that we now di- discover, and, and no, ha- and nobody had an idea how complex immunology actually is. So that was that was exciting times, actually. Mm, yeah, I was just going to ask you that. It must have been exciting to you know be on the kind of the cutting edge of all of all of those new discoveries at that time. Yeah, absolutely, and and but I don't want to be. Too theoretical. I mean, this is why I um, I decided to then you know do practical things, and that's when I joined the the transplantation biology program in, in Seattle at the Fred Hutchinson. And just before that, I mean, in the in, as as an anecdote, in 1990 it was Don Thomas who received the Nobel Prize for for doing the first bone marrow transplantation in uh, identical twins. That, these were the days when just cyclosporin was discovered. I mean, there were no other immunosuppressants except corticosteroids. That was quite heroic. And um, so I, I thought that was fascinating. And, and we had cyclosporin, and we were starting to understand what HLA matches are um, and the first um, inbred uh, syngenic mice, mouse strains were discovered and produced we were doing a lot of transplants, skin transplants, and uh, there were ideas about uh, transfusion problems from twin to twins. And it was, again, it was really a a totally new field. And uh, to be part of that, that was that was exciting. And it was first gave us the opportunity also to cure diseases like uh, aggressive leukemia. I mean, doing transplantations from uh, from matched donors and um, 
not, not even doing autologous transplant. These were the early days of doing allogeneic bone marrow and stem cell transplantation. Um, we're still doing, uh, doing bone marrow at the time. So we had no clue about, you know, what is it, what actually blood stem cell looks like. No clue. And uh, it was the time when CD34 was discovered as a marker for peripheral hematopoietic stem cells. Uh, once again, everything came together uh, at, at those days. And that was also the first encounter with pathology because um, during that time, during the first bone marrow transplantations, um, we, of course, saw a lot of patients with Grafers host disease. So those who had these severe side effects by not perfectly matched donors um, and seeing Grafers host disease on the skin and the liver GI tract. And uh, the pathologists at the time, they made the call the same with with the solid organ transplantation. I mean, um, together with Don Thomas, uh, Joseph Murray received the Nobel Prize for doing the first kidney transplant. And uh, so we, just, we we did a lot of things about trying to understand what the immune infiltrates are those those uh, recipient uh, organs. Uh, so what rejection is, and and how to to cope with it, how to to uh, to stop rejection and and uh, not killing the patients why some kind of overburden immune response. Um, once again, I can only repeat myself, those were really exciting times and there were new grounds basically around every corner. Yeah, it's interesting to think, I mean, you said this was kind of the early 90s and I mean, I guess it's been you know almost 30 years, but it's, it's really amazing to think about how far the field of transplantation biology has come in that time. That, that's incredible. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, it was... It was Rolf Zinkernagel, who was my boss in, in Switzerland, who discovered basically MHC restriction by accident. I mean, he, he was doing infectious study on, I think, uh, Leishmania or something like that. Um, and uh, he could see that only those who had a matching MHC molecule could, could kill the Leishmania-carrying um, antigen-presenting cells. So this was just, you know, at the time, nobody thought about this. It was just Metaware who had discovered HLA in the 50s and 60s, but people thought that's it. That's all. That's how complex immunology will always get. And and this was also the time of new biotech companies uh, when they discovered soluble factors like interleukin two. And I mean, at the time, interleukin two was discovered, and so they they consecutive named it by you know in numerical numbers. I mean, we started with two, and now I don't know where we are actually at the moment. You mentioned that at, at that time, that's where you were first kind of exposed to pathologists and, and pathology. Did that hook your interest right away or is that did that kind of it, it take a little while? No, actually, you're absolutely right. It, it took quite a while because uh, okay. I thought that that pathology was just a basically a tool or, you know, for those who who never want to see the light of the day, you know, sitting in the basements and, and uh, looking into the microscope at the time. Um, so I actually moved into uh, a field called uh, experimental pathology. So we were doing a lot of animal models and um, combining, you know, immunology with pathology. And and uh, but at the same time, same time, I got more and more intrigued. You know what one can see under the microscope, and these were the early days also of molecular pathology. So PCR just entered the the routine diagnostics. That we could detect even even um, let's say a small amount of cells, uh, minimal residual disease was was a totally new word. So everything that seems natural and and obvious to us today 
was was new and tissue again at the time became a little bit old fashioned because everybody thought one can do everything also pathology by you know molecular stuff so mine, grinding and mining the tissue but i actually got got really intrigued by combining the the tissue and and um, its molecular insights and and the experimental uh, let's say aspects of of all the models we had in our hands and this is when i returned to germany and uh, completed my residency and and fellowship in in pathology uh, but also continue my my experimental work okay and this i mean this was kind of the earlier days of immunohistochemistry as well at least probably the automation of of IHC. So there again, you're kind of on the early sort of cutting edge of these new technologies. I mean, we had, IHC was totally new. I mean, it was was still considered experimental when I when I completed my, my fellowship. Um, there were just a few antibodies actually available. And I remember those days when there was the, uh, the MIP-1 antibody to detect KI-67. That was a polyclonal antibody from uh, our colleagues in, in northern Germany. And I mentioned before that I did an externship at the Memorial Sloan Kettering. And um, during that time in the lab, I, I had, the, I had those, this antibody that was totally new to everybody. And I was asked to do a, a Western blot to detect the different components of, of uh, the Kia 67 and, and the target of the MIP-1 antibody. And I... I had everything in hand, but what I didn't expect that it that uh, it was such a high molecular uh, um, protein at the time. I was I think it was three hundred kilodalton or something like that. So today we knew that, uh, but at the time I had it in hand and, and I couldn't figure out what it was. So it was my basically my personal failure. Otherwise, I would have published on on Kia sixty seven probably ten years before any other any other person would have done that. So, but coming back to that. It was long before any other antibody. So I think Ki-67 was one of the first. And then, of course, the panel of cytokeratins and, um, and, and some others. It was probably 10 years even before the Hercept test. Oh, but wow. Again, the, the very early days, yes. Yeah, that's, that's, it's hard to, to, to imagine that <laughs> nowadays. With, there's, there's so many uh, IHC stains now. So how was it then that you went to start working in the pharmaceutical industry? Actually, after completing my, my, my fellowship and my PhD, I was, I was up for tenure track. And um, so I had a couple of offers um, taking over academic positions in, in Europe or even I got one position offered in Australia. But, uh, of course, due okay. to family reasons, I was a young father at the time. I decided to, to stay in, in Central Europe. And um, Roche was actually one of the first companies that were looking for a, a, uh, a pathologist, not a veterinary pathologist, but someone who really could understand what, what type of tumor we are looking at and, and um, so doing, you know, anatomical and surgical pathology. So the research side of Roche was close to my hometown and uh, they offered me a job. And, and since I was always, uh, you know, trying to, to bridge this gap between, you know, science and, and uh, applications, but also uh, industry, I, I, I saw this as an opportunity and I became the director of, of pathology and tissue biomarkers at the time. However, this was, um, this was after the, the uh, era of HER2 detection and interceptors, but it was the first time that, that we were going beyond uh, trying to, 
uh, find new tissue-based biomarkers. And uh, but at the same time, um, seeing the limitations of what can be done on on tissue without jeopardizing the the tissue quality. But if you allow if you allow me to continue, I mean, this was also the time since you you talked about automation. Wow. Uh, when Roche started to to look into opportunities to to go into automated platforms and eventually also acquired Ventana, who was the first company um, that started this this automation besides um, the the Danish company Daco, and all of a sudden, automated IHC became a I wouldn't say a commodity but standards to most of the the lab, and that was exciting because. It was the, the 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 term biomarker. All of a sudden, became um, became known to us and even to our academic customers. Um, once again, uh, these were the early days. Today, biomarker is something that that everybody talks about, and and we do this on on panels and everything. But this was once again um, early days, and that was uh, twenty five years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what was kind of your role in this? I mean, were you more the, the research side or kind of the d- developing the product? No, I was I was actually, um, first of all, part of the research. So in, in pharma, okay. it's, it's, you know, the, the early research and, and early clinical trial to translate everything from the lab into a, a first clinical selection trial. And then at the same time, I was also at the at the end of the value chain to convince and, and talk to our stakeholders and, and customers like the uh, the pathologists in the field uh, trying to explain what what biomarkers are and how to use it properly and uh, that this is of value to to everybody and even to giving better prognostic insights into into patients um, destiny and and their tumors and so at that time we didn't even think about predictive values I mean because herceptin her too, was in the first place it was a, a, a poor prognostic marker, and just with the with the um, antibody trastuzumab and and all the other HER2 antibodies, uh, they all of a sudden became also predictive. So that was a lesson that we learned at the time. So it was I was at the re- early research part, but also at the at the end of the value chain. During this time, was this when you started uh, getting into like image analysis and the computational techniques? We actually started that, but that was very, very, let's say, basic. Uh, mm-hmm. The reason was that most of our, or for, for drug development, you have to do a lot of toxicology. So you have to do a lot of mouse and, and, and small rodent studies. So you had to, to also quantify the changes. And uh, since at that time already, we, we realized that there are not enough pathologists doing this by, by, just by eyeballing. Um, it was the time when every, or some people started to think about image analysis, and we we purchased our first uh, software for doing that. But it was at the time that it, it was not a plug and play type of thing. It was very difficult. We had to adopt the the software and the hardware. And I actually um, hired one pathologist uh, who did nothing but taking care of the image analysis uh, facility and, and doing all the analysis. So everything that we are trying to achieve today, you know, making it a a commodity for practicing pathology, we were far away at the time for for doing this. Um, but you're absolutely right. It was about yeah 15 years ago that we started doing image analysis on first on preclinical models, and then later on 
and, and way later on, uh, we started doing this using this for for clinical uh, biomarker selection and prediction. Yeah, I remember uh, this was probably I don't know late nineties, maybe early. 2000s but the hospital where i worked they in the pathology department they got this machine and i don't even remember the name of the the manufacturer anymore but it was for grading her two tests or her two studies i think there was um imagine the company from might have been uh, yeah from from california i think that was also eventually uh, acquired by by roche and it was the first machine or device that uh, was um was capable of of uh, quantifying her too. Yeah, and I, I remember that thing was really difficult to use, and it <laughs> yeah. it, yeah. it it was really kind of clunky. And it's it's interesting to think what that kind of thing, you know, what what that uh, technology looks like now, and how much easier it is to do. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. All right. So currently, you're the deputy director at the Institute for Digital Medicine, which is in Augsburg, Germany. Correct. Yeah. So how did this role come about for you? Well, about uh, two years, I, I decided to, or I got this offer to return to, to academia. And um, also, on one hand, you know, doing pathology and continuing doing that. But at the same time, trying to bring in all my expertise and knowledge and experience um, on, on uh, digital medicine and, and artificial intelligence. So the, the university decided to found and set up an institute that, should give home to a lot of different uh, professors uh, that deal with with artificial intelligence. So it's basically a, a virtual a virtual institute, like most things are in, in uh, digital medicine or digitization. But uh, we want to bring, let's say, the, the the most advanced digital solutions and and um, artificial intelligence solutions to clinical practice in pathology but also in radiology neurology and uh, connecting connecting those those information that um, you know how does a CT scan or a PET scan looks like when we when we have the histological slides can we pick up alterations that uh, that also gives us a hint on, on on how the histology would look like and so it's it's for it's increasingly more moving into clinical decision support, uh, also trying to give the um, let's say the the boundaries for the, the the clinical decision support that of course requires a lot of regulatory frameworks and approval by the authorities. I have I, I did talk to FDA many years ago. I did talk to the the European authorities. Um, despite the fact that that everybody is very excited about the opportunities, but at the same time, um, the same people are kind of concerned about, let's say, the lack of standardization and experience in the field. And and this institute is trying to to bring people together and 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 uh, um, also, you know, connecting the dots in in bring digital medicine to practice. The lack of standardization. I mean, that's certainly a, an issue. A kind of a roadblock in uh, digital pathology because of the different vendors and the different um, software packages that you can get there. Yeah, absolutely. And it even starts with the, you know, that there is no standardization for the screens that, that we look at. I mean, right. Uh, yeah. You know, there are no standards for the microscopes. I mean, you can purchase any microscope you want and, and look into the microscope and make a diagnosis. But if you do the same thing on the, on the screen, I mean, all of a sudden, you have to demonstrate that this is equivalent to the microscope. 
I mean, what microscope? I mean, do I turn up the light? Do I, have, you know, do I have a rather dim or, or you know? So there, there is no regulations to that, but they are, you know, they're trying to regulate everything, probably for good reasons, um, on on the on the digital part, um, and and certainly this is true for allowing it to to use uh, artificial intelligence and and using uh, machine intelligence to. To, to support clinical decisions. No, as far as the kind of the digital transformation in medicine, do you think that with the COVID pandemic and how long it's been going on and, and having to sort of, you know, healthcare being f- kind of forced to find digital alternatives or virtual alternatives. So do you think this is in a way kind of helped in the digital transformation of medicine? I mean, yes, of course. I mean, uh, we all have this problem about, you know, doing home offices and, and mm-hmm. uh, be not able to go to work for whatever reasons. And and uh, now or, or during this phase of the, the pandemic situation. So this definitely supports telemedicine. But we also realize that that we are not ready to, to do that. I mean, there are a lot of tools available and uh, there is no standardization. It's kind of a let's say a, a sudden rush into into this field um, definitely open up opportunities but at the same time doesn't give us a, enough time to do it properly so now what we have to do after hopefully the pan- pandemic will be over hopefully maybe or in three six months maybe 12 months i don't know nobody knows i guess right. um i think then we have to pick up the loose ends and um, and see what we learned during the the digital transformation or the the use of telemedicine. I mean, telemedicine is, no, is, is an old field. I mean, it was uh, Arizona to to connect. I think it was uh, Flagstaff with uh, with Houston just for getting second opinions. But we never really made progress. And so for me, it's still an open question: who will lead the field? Will it be the industry? Will it be the academics? Will it be the the lack of of pathologists in the future? Will it be being prepared for another? Pandemia, I don't know, but we, we definitely have to 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 learn or or to take the lessons that we that we learned during this the current situation and and we also need to harmonize and this is I think one of the major problems. I mean there there are island solutions everywhere and everybody is trying to find solutions during the situation doing telemedicine, but for me the the, the major problem is harmonizing and and getting standards and and uh, also allowing interoperability. That the slide that I'm seeing is seeing the same the same way in in the U.S. or in Asia or wherever wherever I seek a second opinion or what or whatsoever. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Ralph Hoos. We'll be right back. Labvine has recently reached 5,000 members, and they're running a lucky draw giveaway to celebrate. All you need to do to enter is refer a friend. So, log into Labvine, click the refer a friend button and enter their name and email address. Now, there is no limit to how many people you can refer, but each person has to be either a laboratory professional or someone who works in the healthcare field. And if you're not already a LabVine member, you can follow the link in the show notes to sign up and check out some of the great courses that they have to offer. Dress Med has been designing and manufacturing high-quality scrubs since 1980. The prices are affordable, the shipping is very fast, and the scrubs have lots of pockets, which I really like. I actually have several sets of these myself. So check out Dress Med by using the link in the show notes. You can sign up for their loyalty program for free and earn special offers and discounts. 
Now back to Dr. Ralph Hoos on the People of Pathology podcast. As far as the standardization, I mean, how do you think that kind of thing would, would come about? Well, I think it's, it, it, it probably requires a, a situation where we have a, like, like Hercept, or the Herceptist in, in, the, uh, in the 90s. I mean, there was, a, there was a need to standardize. So we trained the pathologist and, and only when the pathologists were trained, continuously trained and educated on the use and how to report that, then there was a harmonization. And I think we have to do something similar. Um, I would love to see in a, a clinical utility that is that is obvious to everybody that is where we know and understand this can only be solved by by the use of of machine intelligence and and or uh, getting second opinion from wherever place in the world the expert is, and that we all sit together and and and, and build these. Uh, these tools. I think we need to go back, like like in the probably many years ago, and, and have workshops for harmonization, like we did for for a lot of laboratory tests in the past. And I think this is exactly what we also need to do in in digital medicine and and um, and and, and uh, the use of of digital solutions in in clinical practice. I want to move on to to the the book then. So this is published, I, I guess, late last year. This is called. Precision Cancer Medicine, Role of the Pathologist. And this was uh, written by you along with Dr. Bharat Jasani and Dr. Clive Taylor. Correct. And, okay. And that, now precision medicine. Now, this is kind of the the newest concept, I guess, in, in, in medicine now as far as cancer care. So I'm curious then, what was the origin or I guess the the original idea to write this book? Well, that was we we probably started about two years ago thinking about that. And uh, Dr. Dr. Yasani and myself, or Dr. Yasani actually, he is is one of the world that in PDO one um, scoring um, a lot of training he, he for PDO one, and I think he trained and educated probably ten thousands of pathologists worldwide. So he realized that how important it is not only to train the pathologists but also to have. The, all the, the tissues uh, and the, the entire pre-analytic procedure having under control, uh, because otherwise you can train the pathologist. That's fine, but they can only report what they see under the microscope or on the screen. And um, so he asked me whether I would like to join, given my experience in, in uh, digital and uh, computational pathology and, and artificial intelligence, and um, I was happy to to support this. But at the same time, uh, Clive Taylor joined us. And Clive Taylor, I think, he is the world expert in uh, immunohistochemistry. chemistry. I think he he did everything and he knows everything on immunohistochemistry chemistry for the past 40 years. So it was, it was the three of us who split up the roles and uh, the task and Clive Taylor talking about his experience and roles of pre-analytical inconsistencies, how to prepare tissue, how to select the best antibody. And Dr. Yasani talking about, um, you know, what does it mean for assay development, how to report those, those assays and how to pick up pitfalls during all these, um, those procedures, and particularly in, in view of pd one and um, immune oncology. So everything in the context of precision cancer medicine. So what is required that, that in the end, if any pathologist in the world makes a call on on predictive markers for an individual patient that they have taken most 
scrutiny and 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 having to be very careful uh, to prepare everything properly from the, the the sample that comes into the lab all the way until it's under the microscope or it's scanned by an, by a scanner machine and put on the screen and and eventually all the way what it takes to use AI because I think this is one of our major problems to 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 reach a good standardization that we start to to lose sight of the of the samples of the fixation times of all the old fashioned standards that we have implemented in in our in our labs many years ago and um, so it's not all about being fancy at the end you have to be fancy in the beginning already uh, otherwise it's it's like the old story garbage in garbage out if you don't take care of the samples there's no way that you can even the best algorithm will not help you in the end now who is like the intended audience for this book i mean it was was it for, written for pathologists or like physicians who are not pathologists or even even non-physicians or or all of those groups i think they would it's written for all of them i mean it's it's okay. particularly for for all lab staff in pathology for pathologists but also for any stakeholder who, ha- who who are dealing with this, I mean, even for companies who who think they could just uh, you know develop algorithms and implement this in, in surgical anatomical pathology, and even for for people in the legislation in the regulatory bodies, um, it, it was our goal to really tell them to 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 where to take a close look and, and what to to consider. For any approval and, and uh, for any lab standards that they develop, uh, and I would I would be of course thrilled if, if anybody from from USCAP or um, or the the uh, CLIA organization would read this this book. I think everybody's aware of that, but we would like to give it to a broader audience. And this is why we we said you know um, precision cancer medicine. I mean yes, I think we all buy into that. But there is a distinctive role for pathologists and um, not only becoming a computer expert, but in its original and genuine way, uh, what a pathologist does from the beginning all the way to the end. And this is what we wanted to stress and emphasize with this book. When you go through kind of the the changing role of the pathologist as far as cancer diagnosis and treatment, I mean, you, you talk about how it goes how the role has gone from very kind of morphology based, you know, sort of the H and E slide. And now, like, like you've said a little bit earlier, it's more molecular and genetic tests. And in, it's a really good explanation of how that uh, transformation happened. Yeah. And I think we'll see the, the, the next transformation now. I mean, um, you know, we start, everything started with H and E many, many years ago. So it was this, this trend in development going through molecular and genetic testing but what we are now can, can achieve and also take into consideration and combine everything that is, is spatial information, contextual information. It's not about counting the number of, of uh, tumor infiltrated lymphocytes or, you know, how much HER2 is there. It is all about what does it mean in, 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 the, in the context? Do I see certain immune cells at the invasive front, um, I mean, was Jérôme Galland, I mean, who basically proposed this and did a lot of fantastic work, you know, showing that it, it really makes a difference whether T cells are in the invasive front or at the center of the tumor or being excluded. I mean, um, this type of, of tumor heterogeneity uh, is now something that is that we now start to understand, um, being able to use uh, multiplexing and, and using image analysis to 
decipher all of that and then understand that. But at the same time, consider what does it mean in the context of a mutated tumor? What does it mean if we see the same immune profile, but the tumor has a high molecular burden? And these are all differences, but just a, a single pathology mind is not able to comprehend all of that anymore in the future, giving the vast body of information and, 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 and literature that is out there. You brought up a couple interesting points. You, you were just talking about tumor heterogeneity. Why is this important in per- precision cancer medicine? Let me take a step back. I mean, I was always puzzled by the fact that when we reported HER2, it was just about 10% of a three plus HER2 staining in breast cancer. I was always compelled by the question, what about the other 90%? And does it make a difference whether it's in, in, in the center of the tumor or just at the invasive front? And nobody really dealt with that. So with the, with the increasing understanding of tumor heterogeneity, we are now talking about, um, and, and there is increasing sound evidence that um, there are hot tumors where you, for example, see a lot of CDH cells in the tumor itself. So engaging with the with the tumor cells. But then all of a sudden, if, if there is a lot of PDL1, we know that these CD8 cells are probably silenced. And there are, other, there are other tumors where we see that these CD8 cells are outside the tumor. So the tumor is basically deserted of immune cells, but they are a little bit outside waiting to or be ready to engage. But something that that blocks them from, from entering uh, those tumors. And um, it was uh, Bernie Fox and his team in, in Portland showed that this is probably Fox P3 cells, um, so T-Rex that 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 line up along the tumor and and prevent them from uh, from entering, despite the fact that they are totally ready to kill the tumor. And with all this understanding, together with soluble factors like like IDO or arginase or uh, what what's called the the immune smog um, on the on the tumor, we. We are now capable, first of all, understanding the tumor biology and also select the, the best drug for the treatment. And it's not about also monotherapy. It's also about combination therapy because sometimes uh, there is not a lot of, let's say, antigen density on the tumor. So um, if you pretreat the tumor with chemo and uh, you all of a sudden see a lot of neoantigens popping up, the, the T cells that were not able to kill before are now able to kill. So with all this knowledge, whether there is there there is an, a checkpoint uh, inhibition, whether there is are engaging T cells, or whether there is a, a lack of, of antigen an antigen presentation, this is all we need to take into consideration. All of a sudden now we can, and this is something that will totally change the way we tr- we treat cancer in the future. And this is what what why it's so important to understand tumor heterogeneity. Uh, mm-hmm. as a crucial part of, of precision medicine. Being a, a pathologist assistant, so it, the tumor and tissue sampling, that's thats what I do. Is that, like, how does that affect the tumor heter- heterogeneity? Like, I've read about, I think it was uh, k- kidney tumors and how you should kind of oversample or take more samples than usual of the tumor because of the heterogeneity. Is that is that kind of relate to this? I mean, absolutely. I mean, it's not only kidney tumors. I mean, we we also see this in in, in many others. 
but uh, I mean, there has been this this old rule, at least the rule that I learned. For every centimeter of of uh, of tumor, you have uh, one capsule, so one one slide. Mm, uh, yeah. Sometimes it it really depends what 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 the tumor looks like and and what it is. It and it's not only looking into you know the the center of the tumor, but it's also this invasive front and whether it's invasive front from let's say into the stroma area, but also to to the adjacent normal tissue. And uh, yes, we did this to understand what the grading is and and uh, how the the comparison is between normal and or looking for let's say a blood invasion or a lymph vessel invasion or whatever. But now we need to look at at this these different compartments in a different way. We need to understand what what what's out there and and what's in for the tumor and for the patient. Do they hold up something that is important to the to the survival and the the prognosis of of the individual tumor? But of course, at the same time, the, when you talk about oversampling, I mean it's it's also a matter of of, of cost of, uh, efficiency. I mean, my lab manager always tells me, don't don't sample them so much because, you know, you, you spend a lot of money on just the, the resources, the stains, the color, the time of the technicians, everything. So it's it's really trying to find the balance and, and really having a, a good plan for, for getting the most um, out of the material you have. And actually, we will it will be the, the task of the pathologist to do, or do more with less. So we will see way more fine needle biopsies that um, we will we will send to the pathology lab, and because our oncologists want to do neoadjuvant pretreatment to to allow surgeons to reduce tumor size or or certain kind of procedures, so it's it's really a a changing field. You know, some, something else I've read about this concept, and you cover this in the book as well. It's called the tumor microenvironment. Can you kind of explain what what that means? Well, this is, I think, the tumor microenvironment is is one of the most fashionable terms that is currently um, used. I mean, basically, every mm-hmm. almost every second paper in a, in a pathology journal, immunology journal, talks about tumor microenvironment. And uh, I think that half of all the, the scientific grants in pathology are assigned to those who do research on that. Um, the tumor microenvironment is basically the composition of the, the tumor, the stroma, uh, the immune cells, the vasculature, and, and it's not only saying, oh, it's there, but also understanding and describing the contextual relationship and the communication network between the tumor, the immune cells, and also the stroma. I mean, we ignored the stroma for, for many years and said, oh, yeah, there are a lot of collagen fibers and, and fibroblasts. But now we know that there, is, uh, there are cancer-associated fibroblasts, and some of them are anti, anti-tumor or have anti-tumor activities. Others are pro-cancerous. Um, so we also need to understand that. And, and um, this is everything that, that is in the context of the tumor and its and surrounding and, and components of this, this area. This is called the tumor microenvironment. You mentioned a little while ago that the idea of doing uh, more with less. And I think this kind of ties in with, with IHC, especially like multiplex IHC staining and things like this. And there's a section in the book where you talk about converting IHC from a qualitative tissue stain into a quantitative tissue-based assay or uh, in situ proteomics. Can you talk about about this idea and then why this is important for precision cancer medicine? Yeah, it's, it's exactly as you as you pointed out. 
when we talk about proteomics, I think everybody has in mind, you know, we're taking out the tissue, we do a, a multi-tough analysis, and then we get all these uh, thousands of spikes of, of different peptides and proteins and, and, uh, and, and amino acids, you know, to whatever degree. But, um, and this gives us a lot of insights about the, the, the presence of, of certain proteins. But what we also need to do is we need to understand the contextual information and with, with modern technology. So it is possible to really look into the protein and peptide composition inside to in the tissue, particularly in the context of the tumor microenvironment, because a certain protein has maybe a different function if it's in the tumor or if it's still outside the tumor. So with doing multiplexing, and there are companies who allow, you know, 40, 80, 100 um, different proteins on a, on a single slide with different techniques, or there are companies who, who are doing looking for transcripts um, on, on a single slide and, and even being able to, to detect up to, I think, 700, 800 markers on, on a single slide. So this is something you cannot do as a pathologist anymore and deal with all the information. But now it's possible to really all of a sudden see the entire universe of the insight to the, the ins or the to universe of a, of a tumor. And this is what we call insight to proteomics, leaving the, the proteins where they are and where they do their function and, and, and uh, where they have a, an important role in, in the tumor. Do you ever look back, like, uh, you know, doing this kind of stuff with IHC now and think about how you started with it and just, like, it's amazing how far it's come. Do you ever think about that? Of, of course. And, and I, I always think about the missed opportunities that I had if I would have known things better. Uh, oh, sure. But I think that applies to all of us. So, um, yes, I mean, it, it has, I think I, I oversee a, a lot of or a long time of, of immunology and, and cancer medicine and, and diagnosis. And these are exciting times. These are very exciting times because we now open the window to a totally new chapter. I mean, we are now having a machine intelligence that, that helps us and supports us. And uh, we should not be threatened by that. Uh, it's something that what I always say is uh, making a good pathologist even a better pathologist by, by being able to use all of that. Yeah, like I, I read somewhere that it was, you know, the concept of AI and it's, you know, it's supposed to be artificial intelligence, but really, as far as pathology is concerned, it should be augmented intelligence because you still need the pathologist. And these are just kind of like computer, it, it's like computer aided work, if, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, that, that's that's one side of the coin. I mean, on the other hand, it, when we talk about the, the research part, I think, you know, we have we have a long tradition. So we have handed over experience and I have been taught by, taught by, by my, my boss and he was taught by his boss how to, you know, what a certain tumor looks like. And we have textbooks and, and everything. So we look up and compare images. Oh, does it under the microscope look like the, the picture in, in, in the book? But, you know, what, what I think we, we should be open also with the use of, of AI is that, if we go in without hypothesis and say, let the machine look into patterns that we otherwise would not recognize, or we are too biased to to identify this, let's let give uh, let's allow the the machine to give us hints about totally new aspects of the tumor. Then we still, and this is true, you're absolutely right. We have to validate this, and we have to, in the end, make us in, in, or assist us in recognizing and approving and validating those signatures but we should also be open-minded with with all the solutions that 
that uh, AI offers us in the future in terms of research, but also in assisting us doing the things we, we do anyway. Do you think that kind of thing is going to be in the near future or do you think that there's still a lot of work to be done? I think it's a, it's a gradual improvement. I think we will get there because there is a lack of pathologists, I think, everywhere, everywhere in the world. But the need and request for doing proper diagnosis and better diagnosis and, as I said before, um, doing more with less, so uh, selecting drugs uh, properly and and um, with with more confidence, this burden will not go away. This will increase day by day. So I think there's a lot of pressure on us, on our colleagues, on the authorities, on the companies to implement all of that. Um, will this be a routine um, within the next five years? I doubt that. Will this be a routine in 10 years? I hope it. In the show notes for this episode, I'll include a link to the book uh, because it's very interesting, and I think every, everyone should read it. There's a there's a lot of good a lot of good uh, a lot of good ideas, and it, it was it was really I mean it, it is technical, but it's not overly technical where it makes it kind of bogged down with that with that kind of thing. Well, then we do did a good job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you did. All right, all right, uh, Doctor Hoos, this is really interesting. I I really appreciate uh, your time and kind of going you going through your career, and it was. It's interesting to kind of see how you were sort of on, like we said, kind of the cutting edge of these new technologies as they were coming up and how exciting that those times were uh, for you. So, uh, Dr. Ralph Hoos, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It was great talking to you. Great big thanks to Dr. Ralph Hoos. Here's a trailer from another episode that I think you'll enjoy, and then I'll be back with some final comments on this episode. So t- tissue segmentation is delineating a pixel level boundary around different structures in your image. So it could be you know, separating tumor from non-tumor. It could be separating tumor from adjacent stroma and from lymphocytes, from other other types of tissue present in the image, and, and also separating it from the, the, you know, the background white slide. So there's deep learning al- algorithms that given pixel level annotations, can predict a pixel level segmentation result. And the, the reason, I guess, tissue segmentation is important is gonna depend on your application, what, t- what type of solution you're, you're trying to develop. If you are trying to you know, identify where the tumor is to help a pathologist focus in on just that area, that, that's certainly one application. Another is prognostics, so pre- predicting the outcome from a whole slide image. You can hear more from Dr. Heather Couture in episode 63. So this was a really interesting look at the past and potential future of digital pathology, digital medicine, and of course, precision cancer medicine. And I enjoy hearing how Dr. Hoos was right in the middle of all of that as it was happening and how exciting those times must have been. So I think the main lesson from all of this is not to be afraid of these new technologies as they come up, but to study them and try them out if you can, because you never know, some of these things might just be the future of our field. I'll have links in the show notes to everything we talked about today, including the book, Precision Cancer Medicine, Role of the Pathologist, as well as another book that Dr. Hoos has written that should be out sometime in March, which is called Artificial Intelligence Applications in Human Pathology. Don't forget, you can follow this show on Twitter and Instagram at People of Path, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others, and together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, 
which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.